Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. That, Lord, it is well with our souls, not because of any work that we have done, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. Father, our only hope is Jesus. And, Lord, as we approach this passage of Scripture, where we get to see the glorious Jesus, the one who has come to be our Lord, our Savior, our rescuer. God, I pray for the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit of Almighty God to fill us this morning. May you be exalted to teach us the truth and give us eyes to see the glory of the Son of God who is Jesus the Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would be transformed, that we would be changed to be more and more like Jesus today. And God, we know we're not the only church in town. And so, Lord, our prayer is that you would be exalted among the churches of this community. Lord, I pray specifically for Pastor Monty Trammell and Orsino Baptist Church, now named North Point Baptist Church. Father, I pray that you would fill Pastor Monty with the power of your spirit as he leads your people. And may the people who are the church of Jesus Christ be filled not only in the spirit of Christ as they gather, but with the power of Jesus as they go on mission in this community. Lord, it's well with our soul and it's well because of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Becky, for being put in the hard spot of bringing me the microphone and being embarrassed by it. So if you guys have your microphone, if you have your microphone, ah, ah. if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter nine, Mark chapter nine in our next passage in the study of the gospel of Mark. You know, there are some things in life that are just so unique, so unlike anything else that we would walk through that it's actually really difficult, maybe impossible to explain those things to someone else who hasn't explained them. So if you've seen a natural beauty, there's a place in North Carolina my family goes, we love to go out on the back porch on those crisp fall mornings when the dew is sort of still all over the ground and there's a fog that gathers in this little valley that you're looking out over. It's one of the best places in the world to drink coffee and I can't explain it to you if you haven't been there. Some of you may have and it's an awesome place. There, there's the, the experience of being a father and holding my newborn children for those first times in my arms. I can't explain it. Uh, you may know what it's like if you've been there, but if you've not, I, I don't have words to convey it to you. It's kind of like being a Cleveland Browns fan for the last 40 some years. You may not know what it's like, and I can't explain why we go through what we go through as Cleveland Browns fans. So, so there are things in life that are difficult, if not impossible, to explain to someone who hasn't already experienced it for themselves. And our passage of Scripture for this morning is actually one of those types of things from the very life of Jesus Christ. It's called the Transfiguration. Many of you have already heard about this or read about it or studied it, but it's one of those rare, unique things that none of us have experienced the way it was experienced here 2,000 years ago in the lives of Peter, James, and John gathered on this mountain with Jesus. We, we just can't understand 
all there is to understand about the Mount of Transfiguration. And so there's a lot of mystery that's involved. It's one of the reasons why I've prayed for the Holy Spirit to teach us. Because I can't explain most of what takes place in this passage. But just because we can't understand everything doesn't mean we can't understand anything. There are some powerful truths here at the Mount of Transfiguration that I pray that we would learn together and we would be transformed by as we scatter. And so with that in mind, let's look at our next passage of Scripture, Mark chapter 9. And I'll start by reading verses 2 through 8. Verse 2 says this, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Okay, so I hope you can see what I was saying about this being such a unique experience. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to this high mountain, and his appearance is dramatically changed, transformed right there in front of him. And then two men from the Old Testament who'd been gone from earth for hundreds of years, Moses and Elijah, mysteriously and miraculously appear right there as they're transported somehow back to earth in front of these disciples. And then God the Father in a scene that's reminiscent Out of Exodus chapter 19, when God came to the mountain and met with Moses 1,500 years prior to this, in that scene, you find God the Father descending in a thick cloud and His voice speaking out and making them tremble and be terrified. And then in an instant, it all sort of just goes away. And they follow Jesus back down the mountain and go on with the mission of His Life. So there are lots of things in this passage that are just unique to this passage. They're mysterious for us. As a matter of fact, we're not alone in the mystery of what's taking place here. Even the disciples are mystified by what's taking place. You saw that there in verse 5 when Peter shows how mystified he is. He starts offering to build three tents in honor of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And why three tents? As a matter of fact, you can kind of read in between the lines here that Mark may have asked Peter that question. Don't forget that Peter was the mentor to Mark who wrote this book. And so Mark is in essence writing the story of the life of Jesus through the lens of what he learned from Peter. And it's almost as if Mark at some point said, Peter, why why did you offer to build three tents And Peter's like, I have no idea. Like, I had no idea what to say. And I was just nervously talking there on the mountain. I I heard a pastor once say that there are two kinds of people. Some people who have something to say and people who have to say something. And Peter's definitely into the category of having to say something whether he has something to say or not. And I don't want to follow Peter's example this morning. So rather than get bogged down in all of these details and mysteries that have mystified Christians and scholars for thousands of years. What I want us to do 
is spend our time focusing on the main things that we see in this passage. Things that, that are clear to us. Because God has chosen to make these things clear. So let me just start with the big idea that I see here. And then what we'll do is walk through some of the details of this passage in light of our big idea for this morning. Here's today's big idea. Jesus is the glorious Son of God who is worthy of our worship, belief, and obedience. Jesus is the glorious Son of God who is worthy of our worship, belief, and obedience. Guys, that's the primary point of this passage of Scripture. You might ask, how would we know that's the primary point? Well, because God the Father basically tells us that's the primary point. While Peter is nervously rambling about his harebrained scheme to build some tents on the top of this mountain, God the Father actually interrupts Peter and tells him, here's what you need to know, Peter. Look at verse 7 again. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice, the voice of God, came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. God the Father speaks to those that are gathered and to us in turn as we witness this awesome scene. He says, guys, here's what you need to know. You need to know that Jesus is my glorious son, my only son, the son that I love. So honor him as the glorious son of God. Hear him, listen to him, believe him, obey him. Jesus is the glorious Son of God and is worthy of our worship, our belief, and our obedience. Now, let's walk back through this text and let me show you why I consider that the big idea. And we'll just go through it one little bit at a time, starting with the idea of this. Jesus is the glorious Son of God. You see that really clearly. That's what God the Father points out. This is my Son. Behold Him in His glory. Friend, though Jesus Christ is a man, He is more than merely a man. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. You need to know this if you're new to Christianity, if you're visiting this morning and you're sort of stepping in to see what things are all about. I want to tell you unequivocally and without any shame or hesitation that the core of Christianity is a person whose name is Jesus. And Jesus, though he became a man, is more than a man. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He's the eternal Son of God who's existed forever, co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 17 has to say about Jesus. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. That just means he's the invisible God who was made visible. The firstborn. That's not a term of sequence. It's a term of importance. He's over all creation. For by him, Jesus... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I think that pretty much covers it, right? Jesus is the God who created this universe Jesus is the God who this very day holds all things in this universe together. Simply put, guys, there is no one like Jesus. He's more than a prophet. 
He's more than a transformational leader. He's more than a great teacher. He's more than a perfect example. He's infinitely greater than Buddha and Muhammad and Confucius or you and me. He's infinitely more important than George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who miraculously became a man at Christmas and lived among us during His life on this earth. And while he lived on this earth, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was veiled in human flesh. He took the form of a servant, Philippians chapter 2, verse says, and was made in the humble likeness of a common man. God became a man. But here at the transfiguration, God the Father allows the appearance of Jesus to be transformed. So that Christ's eternal glory would shine through in a way to Peter, James, and John that they weren't accustomed to seeing through the veil of his human flesh. And let me just show you actually a couple ways where we see the glory of God shining through at the transfiguration of Jesus. His glory, this is, this is the most obvious way, is, is displayed through his appearance. Notice how the text is, is emphasizing that. Mark 9, verses 2 through 3 says this, He was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Listen to Matthew's account of this description of his appearance. Matthew says in chapter 17, verse 2, And he was transfigured before him, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white, as light. You notice that word transfigured is included in both of these texts. The word transfigured actually translates the Greek word, which is the original language of the New Testament, the Greek word metamorpho. It's where we get another term that we're familiar with, the term metamorphosis. And what it means is to be changed in a manner that's visible to others. And there's a lot of mystery here. Guys, I can't explain it, but for a moment in time, Miraculously, by God the Father's power, the appearance of Jesus was transformed, was changed in a manner that was visible to those who were gathered on that mountain, Peter, James, and John. And it wasn't that Jesus became something different than he had ever been. It's that Jesus was able to display the glory that he had always had. You see, Matthew says that his face shone like the sun. Guys, have you ever tried staring into the sun? I don't suggest it. But when I was a a kid, and I don't suggest it. Guys, do not do this, children. I promise. Don't try this at home or any other place where the sun is shining. But for some reason, as a 10-year-old kid, I got the harebrained scheme to try and see how long I could stare into the sun. And I'm pretty sure one of my four brothers put me up to it. Those were the kids, those were the the days uh, where we had to play games that weren't on our smartphones, the good old days, like staring into the sun as long as you could. Well, all I remember about that ridiculous experience was trying to keep my eyes open as I looked up into the sky and immediately the only thing that I remembered was the painful glare of the sun and then a deep and abiding panic that set in when I was convinced that I had just blinded myself for life. I mean, it was awful. I couldn't see for a while. 
I could see nothing else but that big blue image of the sun that dominated everything that I saw afterward. And that's sort of what Peter, James, and John experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration. They caught a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. And staring at the S-O-N sun was something like staring into the S-U-N sun. It was radiant and blinding in a way where you could see nothing else but Jesus. A type of radiance and intensity that almost made you feel as though you were being blinded by the holy glory of Christ. And friend, that's what Jesus is like. He's glorious in His holiness. Listen to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. This is at the end of the scripture, and it details something that will occur at the end of this age. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, the author of Revelation, John, who is here on the Mount of Transfiguration, says this, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Listen, one day, John says that every man, woman, and child will stand before Jesus as the holy judge of the universe. And on that day, Jesus will appear in all of his glory. And the appearance of the full glory of Jesus Christ will cause the heavens and the earth to try and flee away from Christ because the intensity and radiance and holiness of the glory of Jesus is so overwhelming that even this universe would run away. But there's no way to run from Jesus the Christ He is the king over all things. There's no place to hide. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, wrote about the return of Jesus in his glory in his book, Mere Christianity. I just want to share what C.S. Lewis had to say about this day when Jesus finally shows up in all of his glory. That glimpse of glory that was revealed at the transfiguration. C.S. Lewis says this. I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world, quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it's the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right. But what's the good of saying you're on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream, And something else, something that never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either resistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it's become impossible to stand up. (laughs) That is so good. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Jesus Christ, 
is the glorious holy son of God. And his glory is greater than we can comprehend. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, that glory broke through the human veil of flesh and was shining like the radiant sun. And one day that appearance of Christ will be seen. You will see it and I will see it. Every man, woman, and child will see it. Jesus will return and his glory will be displayed and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the glorious Lord to the glory of God the Father. And before we move on, my question is this. Have you done that? Have you bowed before Jesus as the glorious Son of God that before His appearing you would already embrace His glory, His holiness, His grace, and His mercy because the day is coming when the glorious appearance of Christ will break through once again. And there is nothing more important than that you would be ready for the day of the appearing of the glorious Son of God, Jesus Christ. Don't leave this place without knowing Jesus as the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul. We'll actually come back to that before we're done. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of the Son of God was displayed in His appearance as a precursor for the day when His appearance will be made known to every eye on earth. But that's not the only way we see the glory of the Son of God at the Mount of Transfiguration. His glory is also displayed through His fulfillment of God's plan. Let me show you what I mean. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 9 through 13. It says, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them not to tell, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Okay, so there's a lot going on in this few verses of scripture. And it would actually take a complete sermon on a Sunday morning for me to try and do a deep dive into all these verses. But I just want to summarize this morning as best I can what's taking place in this little dialogue. The disciples are walking down the mountain with Jesus. No doubt they're talking with one another about everything they just experienced. Brock, can you believe what we just saw? Can you believe that? And one of them says, no, I can't believe it, but I saw it. I believe it. What did it mean? I have no idea. They're talking with each other about everything. And Jesus hears them talking about it. And he tells them, guys, don't tell anyone what you just saw until I've risen from the dead. And that statement from Jesus sort of throws them into confusion about a couple of points. They're still confused about the idea that Jesus is going to suffer and die. You see, they had always envisioned a Messiah who would come and in the glory of the power of God would overthrow all of their enemies, particularly that the Roman Empire would be overthrown by the messianic power of Jesus the Christ. And so they can't conceive how Jesus would fulfill the plan of God to establish 
an unconquerable kingdom over all of the earth and at the same time somehow have to suffer and die. And so they're confused. As they expect a conquering king, they get a suffering king who's going to die in humility. So they're confused about that. They're also confused about Elijah. They knew that there was a prophecy at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. You guys can write that down and look it up in your own time. That prophecy says that Elijah must return to this earth to call people to repentance before the coming of Christ. But they just saw Elijah in a vision on the mountain. And it was a reminder that Elijah hadn't come before Jesus So they're talking amongst themselves like, man, I'm so confused. They leave the Mount of Transfiguration somewhat like you might leave this message this morning with more questions than they have answers. And they say, how is this all going to fit together? Like, what about this Elijah thing? Wasn't he supposed to come before the Christ? It doesn't seem like God's fulfilling his plan the way they expected him, the way they understood the scriptures. To say It didn't seem like Jesus was going to be all that they thought he would be. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that they're confused. And so Jesus starts to talk with them. He actually responds to their question about Elijah with a couple points of clarification. First, he says this. He says, Elijah had already come. Now, you can look this up in your own time. But on Matthew's account of this, this transfiguration scene, Matthew 17, verse 13 Matthew says that the disciples understood by the end of Jesus' talking that Jesus was actually referring to John the Baptist. He's saying John the Baptist had come in the spirit of Elijah, preaching the message of Elijah, a message of repentance. There are lots of questions that we have about this, but Jesus is clearly saying that John had been some sort of fulfillment to that prophecy. And there may be more to it that he explained or that he alluded to, like the fact that they didn't expect that the Christ would return twice, that he would come at his first coming and then again his second coming. And that in that first coming, potentially, John the Baptist fulfilled the spirit of Elijah's ministry. And there are many scholars who believe that before the second coming, Elijah will come physically to this earth as one of the two witnesses who would be a precursor to the coming of Christ. There's a lot of mystery here, but what's very clear is that John is the fulfillment in some way of this prophecy about Elijah. But what Jesus really does is is he takes them back to show them that, that the main thing is not the detail about Elijah. The main thing about the promises and plans of God is his plan about Jesus. That the the middle of God's plan, the center of God's plan, it's not all of the details about Elijah and the timing of everything. It's It's the ministry that Jesus would have. As a matter of fact, what he does is he says, all of the prophecies about Elijah are attached to the central prophecies of the Messiah. And he says, don't you know that it is promised that the Son of Man, that the Messiah would have to suffer and die? That's a reference to Isaiah 53 that says that he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, that he would be despised and rejected and offered up as a sacrifice of sin. Essentially, here's what Jesus is doing in this encounter down the mountain. He's saying, guys, as you're thinking about the fulfillment of God's plan... I know you are looking to the fulfillment of God's promise to build a kingdom that will cover the whole earth. And you need to know I will fulfill that plan. 
But that's not all there is to the plan. There's something that has to happen first. I have to suffer and die. He says that is the centerpiece of God's plan for the world. I, Jesus says, have come to fulfill the centerpiece of God's whole plan for all his people throughout all the world. And that cannot happen unless I suffer and die. And that actually relates to the other way we see Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plan. That's alluded to in Luke's uh, account of this transfiguration. In Luke chapter 9 verse 30. He tells us what happens when Jesus meets with Moses and Elijah. Luke 9, 30 and 31 says this. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. And notice this phrase. And spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, where was Jesus going to accomplish this departure? Where? At Jerusalem. Now, what did he do in Jerusalem? What did he do in Jerusalem? Think Easter. What did he do in Jerusalem? He died on the cross and he rose again, right? So they're, they're, they're talking. Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his departure, which he will accomplish in Jerusalem when he dies on the cross and he's raised again. Now that word departure is a really great word. It actually translates the original language of the Bible, Greek, the word exodus. Does it sound familiar? Exodus. So get this, guys. I love this. Jesus is standing on the mountain in a conversation with Moses. Like Moses. Like Charlton Heston, Moses, right? And what are they talking about? The Exodus. Now, if you know the stories of the Bible, you know that the Exodus is a reference to how God led his people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. You guys know that, right? Don't make me pull out the flannel graph and and remind y'all. And the question is this, who did God lead? Who did God use to lead the Exodus? Moses, right? So Jesus and Moses are talking on this mountain. What are they talking about? They're talking about the Exodus, but not the Exodus that Moses led 1,500 years before. They're talking about another Exodus. They're, They're talking about the Exodus that Jesus came to lead. The one he's trying to explain to these disciples who are lost in all of the details. When does Elijah come? When is all the prophecies fulfilled? When is the plan of God? He's talking with Moses about this central centerpiece of all of God's plan for all of God's people throughout all of time. He's talking about the exodus that Jesus came to lead when he went to Jerusalem. You see, the exodus from Egypt was just a shadow of a greater exodus that was coming Jesus came to lead God's people out of slavery to sin and death and hell. Luke says he's going to accomplish that when he goes to Jerusalem, when he goes to the cross where he defeats sin and Satan. And though he defeats sin and Satan through his death at the cross, when Jesus dies, he doesn't stay dead, does he, church? You can't keep the glorious author of life in a grave, can you? 
He rises again in victory over death and the grave. He rises again so that he could raise everyone who would trust in him to a life of freedom from sin, a life that's lived in the promised land of Almighty God, a life of everlasting joy and pleasure forevermore, an abundant life with the river of the Holy Spirit of God flowing through us, the true exodus is the liberating work of Jesus Christ that was accomplished at the cross and in the empty tomb. And what Jesus is showing and displaying and leading these disciples who still don't get it to understand is that from the very beginning of time, God had a plan. And His plan was that Jesus, the glorious, eternal Son of God, would come. And he would come veiling his glory in human flesh and live as a humble servant and fulfill the plan of God by walking to a cross called Calvary, dying as a sacrifice for sin, being buried in a borrowed tomb and rising again. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, everyone who's placed their faith and trust in Jesus in a mysterious way that's even more mysterious than the Mount of Transfiguration was led out of the grave and led out of eternity in hell and led out of of slavery to sin and led out of a life of futility and failure and a destiny of destruction. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, he was a greater Moses walking out of the place of liberation, leading a multitude of people with him into the kind of life that only Jesus can bring. He's the fulfillment of the plan of God. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are part of that multitude led by Christ in a greater exodus to a life of glory and grace and mercy and liberation and freedom and victory and abundance. Jesus came to lead you to God and the life that only Jesus can bring. Isn't he glorious? He's glorious. And that's what he's pressing in. We see the glory of Jesus The Son of God, through the change of His appearance that puts a crack in the veil and shows He is radiant like the sun in holy glory. And He's the fulfillment of all God's plan, namely the plan of salvation to liberate sinners like us to a resurrection life like His. We see the glory of Jesus and only Jesus can do that And the transfiguration is a glimpse into that glory of Jesus. So the question then becomes, so then how do we respond? Like how do we respond? What practical implications should we have in our lives as we think about the glorious Son of God whose name is Jesus? Well, first of all, don't start nervously talking about plans to build tents on the top of mountains. Peter already showed that's a bad idea. But our text actually gives us two really big implications, two ways to respond. First, Jesus is worthy of worship. 
Matthew 17, 6 says this. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. When Peter, James, and John take in the vision of Christ's glory and they hear the voice of God the Father say, this is my glorious beloved son. Listen to him. What do they do? They bow in reverence. In holy reverence before Jesus the Christ. And friend, that is something that should take place in all our hearts when we encounter Jesus for who he really is. And I fear there are few in our world today who respond to Jesus in that way. You see, we live in a culture that treats Jesus like he's a little bit more like a cosmic Mr. Rogers than the holy God of heaven and earth. The holy judge from whom heaven and earth try to flee away on the day of judgment. We speak about Jesus casually and lightly. His name has become a curse word in our culture. My question for you this morning is, what happens in your heart when you think about Jesus When you hear that he's the holy, glorious son of the almighty God, the fulfillment of all God's plans and promises for his people, is there a part of your heart that feels casual about the Christ? Where you sit unaffected in a room like this because you've heard it all before. Where you have the audacity to be thinking about Jesus but wondering what's for lunch. Don't tell us that's not in our hearts. What happens in your heart when you think about Jesus? One of the most practical responses to this truth this morning is that you would simply get on your knees before Almighty God and say, God, would you renew a spirit of worship in me for the person of Jesus Christ? Will you help me live with a holy reverence that Jesus is not just a name that we sing about at a religious gathering I attend each week? Father, would you help me wake up in the morning and live through my day as though there is no one in all of existence in my heart, who is more glorious, more wonderful, more beautiful, more valuable, more, more worthy of my life. What would it look like if you laid your whole life down today in honor of Jesus with the desire to honor him in everything you say or do? That's the only right response to Jesus. He is the glorious Son of God who's worthy of worship. And some of you say, well, what what would that life even look like? A life laid down as an act of worship, not one time a week, but every moment of the day. What would that look like? Well, that's the second thing we see in our text. Jesus is worthy of worship, and Jesus is worthy of our belief and obedience. That's what God the Father said. Look back at Mark chapter 9, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You hear what the father says? He says, listen to Jesus. Hear his word. Believe his word. Obey his word. That's what's wrapped up in that command to listen. 
He's not just saying be a hearer that the words skip off your heart and life. He's saying be a hearer who believes and embraces the word of Jesus in a way that transforms your life. In a way that you obey the word of Jesus. Friend, when you really believe that Jesus Christ is the glorious son of God who came to fulfill all of God's plan. Nothing is more important in your heart than hearing, believing, and obeying what Jesus has to say in his word, the Bible. As a matter of fact, when Peter finally got what was going on, years later, after the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter wrote a letter. And in this letter to the Christians, he gives them instructions about what to do in response to Christ. And he never tells them to build a tent. He'd gotten that out of his system. But notice what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, when Peter talks about the transfiguration, here's what he says in verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now notice this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you guys see what Peter's saying there? He's saying, listen... When we talk about the truth of Jesus, the word of Christ, we're not talking about cleverly devised myths. He says, as a matter of fact, I was an eyewitness. I stood on the mountain. I saw his majestic glory. I heard the voice of the Father confirming that Jesus is the glorious Son of God. I I was there. I was an eyewitness. But then he says this to all the people who will never be eyewitnesses to that, to all of us, who would say, this is so mysterious, I wasn't there, and no words that I hear can explain and help me understand all that was going on. He says this, just because you missed the Mount of Transfiguration doesn't mean that you've missed the word of Christ. He actually says in verse 19, we, us, the people of God, have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What's he talking about? He's talking about the word of Christ, the Holy Bible, the scriptures. He's saying this, if you don't pay attention to the word of Christ in his word, you wouldn't pay attention if you were transported to the Mount of Transfiguration. He says the word of God is more fully confirmed than even the eyewitness experience of seeing the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. What is he saying? He's saying this. If you want to know the majestic glory of Christ, then listen to his voice in his word, the Bible. 
It is more fully confirmed as the prophetic word of Christ than even the eyewitness experience of those who've gone before us. And so if you want to live a life that worships Jesus as the glorious Son of God, I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like honoring Jesus by paying close attention to Christ's word, the Bible. Are you reading the word of God? Are you believing the word of God? Are you obeying the word of God? You cannot separate the worship of the Christ from the word of Jesus, the Bible. So what would it look like if you renewed this morning your commitment to listen to Jesus? Because there's no one like Jesus Because he's the glorious son of God who's worthy of your worship if you renewed your commitment to listen to Jesus by hearing his voice through the word. Is there any place of your life that you know you are not in alignment with what Jesus says in his word? This morning, would you lay your life down in an act of worship and faith and step into obedience by relying on the power of the Christ who came To liberate you from sin. Guys, there is no one like Jesus. And may your heart be thrilled when you think about Jesus. And may you leave this place as living sacrifices of worship. Who hear the voice of Christ in his word. Who believe everything he has to say. And who obey him. In every area of your life. Would you bow your heads and make your prayer with me this morning? And if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you realize this morning that the day will come when you will stand before Jesus who is God, the judge of heaven and earth. And you realize on that day, you do not have confidence that in the day of judgment, your life would be approved and you would be allowed into heaven. Would you bow before Jesus and believe the gospel and embrace the promise of Christ? That Jesus came to die on the cross as a payment for your sin because you'll never be able to do enough to earn acceptance with God. Would you confess by faith that you believe that not only did Jesus die as a sacrifice for your sin, right now in prayer before God the Father, confess that you believe that Jesus rose again from the dead so that he would raise you up from a life of death to a brand new kind of life in his power? Would you call on Jesus, the Lord, to save you from your sin and restore you to God, the Father? Right now, call on Jesus. For those of you who are trusting in Jesus, is your life a life of worship to the glory of Jesus the Christ? Are you living a life that hears his voice and his word? That actively believes what he has to say and by faith obeys all that he commands?
right now, would you, would you ask Jesus that by the power of his spirit, he would stir your heart to respond to him with worship through this day, with belief in his promises and word, and with obedience to all that he says. Father, we thank you for this glorious and mysterious scene. This event that took place 2,000 years ago on a mountain far away from here. That we pray by your spirit would would be made fresh and new in our hearts. That we would see the glory of Jesus as we behold him in your word. Help us, God, I pray, to respond with worship that bows before Christ and lays our life down before Him. And God calls us to respond to the voice of the Father by listening to the Word of the Son through the Scriptures, the prophetic Word of the Bible. Lord, may we seek Your face in Your Word each day. Have faith to believe all that You say. And I pray by the Holy Spirit's power that we would have strength to obey all that you command as we trust in Christ to be Christ in us. We love you. We praise you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.